We do have um, uh, approval on our construction documents. And um, we should be able to pick up permits Monday, and we're starting to break up the floor of the bathroom because we have to double the bathroom and a bunch of stuff going on. So who knows how long all this is going to take. I think if angels were doing it, six weeks, could be eight. There are no angels working over there that I've seen yet. But uh, we have... um, yeah, we have a lot of exciting things going on, and we'll start see if we can't make some video and show you a little bit of updates. And um, but that that's exciting. Six, seven months of my life working on all this. So, but since I'm awesome, uh, double awesome. Okay, feeling better already. I wouldn't. I thought I might just be single awesome, but. Uh, no, it's uh, it's exciting. We're going to have, um, we'll all be under one roof. We'll have plenty of parking. And uh, we can make it look as bad as this place, or as cool as this place, or as <laughs> long as there's enough money anyway. It'd be awesome. But uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your your gifts. We raised, like I said earlier, like $65,000. And we have saved money for six years towards this project and then we had um, we've had some tremendous favor from the guy that owns the building Uh, it's really phenomenal we couldn't have done it if he didn't really jump in there so it's it's exciting okay Um, I wanted to I want to talk today about the 23rd Psalm and my hope is that um, you see it in you know, to me, the 23rd Psalm is almost that psalm you can be so familiar with, it doesn't still resonate. How many of you know what I'm, I'm talking about? And um, so let's do this. I want, it to, I want the Lord to bless, bless his word to us today in a legit way. Lord, I'm asking that you would, by the Spirit and our openness, extract from... Psalm 23, everything you want us to have. And I just pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and uh, I've got it on an overhead. And there it is. Psalm 23, let's read this out loud. And as I have mentioned before, that means words are coming out of your mouth. Okay. The Lord is, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, why don't you, you can take a seat. There's so many great images in that that psalm. There's the shepherd, there's the oasis. There's the valley of death. There's this enemy. There's a full table. There's an anointing. There's this cup. And then there are the two pursuers. Goodness and mercy. And um, then the promise to abide in the house of the Lord forever. So it's just an amazing, amazing psalm. But what's, to me... So important about it is the context in which it was written. Uh, The author is David, and the background in David's life is that one of his sons, I believe it was his third son, Absalom, through a long process had stolen the hearts of the men of Israel. And at a given point, 
he moved, Absalom moved from Jerusalem to a neighboring city, Hebron, and proclaimed himself king in place of his father. And he did that over years. What he would do, he would meet people at the gate who felt like the king hadn't given them justice, and he would say, well, someone should, so I shall. And so he um, just stole the hearts of the people from the king. And um, when he proclaimed himself king, um, he had a large number of warriors with him. And so David fled from Jerusalem and wandered in exile for fear of his life. He didn't know what was going to happen to his family. Actually, Absalom humiliated David's family that was left in Jerusalem in the most perverse way. And so David had no idea how this was going to turn out. Uh, And so he wrote this psalm in that context. And it's amazing, honestly, it's amazing that he would write that particular psalm in this context because none of it seemed true for him at the time he wrote it. And that's why it's such a significant psalm. Um, we'll, We'll look into that. So David was living in days of betrayal, heartbreak. He was uncertain how to feed his men or his family, not sure he was going to live through the crisis. And so he writes a song. This is a song he sang, which proclaimed over and over and over the goodness of God. So he's proclaiming the goodness of God when his experience is just the opposite. And that's one of the essential relationships we need to have with the word of God. Hey, welcome to the spiritual life. Are you listening? Yeah. Now, so many people, when they meet the Lord, when things get rough, they leave. You know what I'm saying? They leave. Um, And I think it's because they don't understand what they bought into. And I think it's because they don't understand how it is to live a truly spiritual life. I remember getting saved. They told me, get saved, your life will be wonderful. And I thought, well, you know, what happened to that promise? (laughs) Because I've had a great life, don't misunderstand me, but it hadn't been this trouble-free, non-problematic existence I was uh, sold. But here's a spiritual principle. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes... You must declare the promises of the word in the face of contradictory circumstances. Let me say that again. Sometimes you must declare the promises of the word in the face of contradictory circumstances. And let me say this. Sometimes even as you proclaim your faith, and it ultimately still doesn't work out, that's still faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And, you know, why not have faith even when everything's falling apart? Not having it is a, uh, you, you, you know, you just give up. You just give up. So our faith has got to be in God. We need to have essential revelation about what he really will do subjectively for people. But at the same time, not hold him hostage to doing what we want him to do. Everybody, I could thin this crowd out here in a minute if you let me. <laughs> no, not really, because you're hungry. You want to. You should know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Just because I say things can be hard, that doesn't mean I'm inviting hardness. But if I don't tell you that, and you believe some other kind of Good news, it's not as good as you think. And you get out there and get in a mess. You think you've been lied to or betrayed or that God's not good or the Bible's not true. You just don't understand how it works sometimes. Come on, somebody. I know what I'm talking about. I really love people that have been Christians and they're still devout after 30, 40, 50 years. You know, and sometimes there are not that many of them around. They may still be churchgoers, but I mean people that are still devout, people that still have faith, 
people that still exercise uh, gifts of the Spirit and are aggressive in what they believe about the Lord because those people know something. Now, um, declaration... Now, here's the thing. It may even sound to yourself like you aren't being truthful. How do you think David felt when he was saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... He makes me lie down in these awesome places and he refreshes me. And he looks over his shoulder. There's Absalom trying to kill him. Already raped his household. But you see, this is, this is part of the Christian life. To them that overcome, the Lord grants certain privileges and benefits. So that means if, 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 if there are privileges and benefits to overcomers, there's something you've got to come over. And you can't avoid certain things. I remember um, a lot of people, they really do live in, in a delusional world. Um, they think they're successful people when they really haven't been tested yet. And they, they have had, and, and particularly if you have some means, you, you can control everything to the degree that you don't suffer what normal people suffer. But, but there's always that day of reckoning. What do I mean? Well, a boss, I had a, one of the, I I worked for one company in Charlotte for about 12, 14 years and really good friends with with, uh, my employer and his wife. And she was talking about how people have to grow up. And she said, you know, I was pregnant and giving birth in the hospital and it hurt so bad. Mother's day, (laughs) sorry. It hurt so bad, she said, I'm not doing this. I'm getting up and getting out of here. And it was the first time in her 25-year-old life she ever had to go through something she did not want to do. But that's called reality. What are you going to do when you face things you can't change that you don't want and you're in it? What are you going to do? God's either got to be real or you're going to make a much worse mess than you're already in the middle of. And I don't like that. I don't like to see people mess up beyond (laughs) adequate training. (laughs) So, now, it's an aspect of, uh, of of our lives. And so declaration and proclamation are both essential of the Word. But if you don't know what's in the Word, um... The, the devil's going to steal your stuff. Now, I know a lot of Christians don't believe in the devil. Well, he's just that smart, isn't he? He doesn't want you to believe in him. Because he wants to take your stuff. He wants to hurt you. He wants to hurt your kids. He really does. I mean, you have to look. You have, or do you really just believe what the Bible says? There's real evil in this world. And it wants to hurt you. And so the Lord gives us the Bible. The Lord gives us fellowship. The Lord really gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the church. He gives us gifts of the Spirit. He gives us faith. He gives us discernment. He gives us wisdom. He gives us all of those things so that we can show the world how good he is. Now, um, it struck me even as I studied this particularly this weekend, that the Lord's Prayer, I'm sorry, the 23rd Psalm is not a prayer. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. And we're going to declare some of this over our own lives here in a few minutes once we see the implications. Because just because you know a Bible verse and say it does not mean you get the reality of it yet. And, I, and I'll tell you why. I quoted the Lord's Prayer from the time I could quote at least once a week, maybe twice, depending on how often we went to church. Because the church I went to said it at the end of every single meeting, 18 years. 
And I'm not putting them down. I'm saying this about myself. I could quote your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven, and never one single moment of my life see an aspect of the kingdom of God manifest in our midst. And there we are praying that. What did it mean? Your kingdom come in earth, on earth, as it is in heaven. It meant whatever they're doing up there ought to work down here for us to demonstrate the kingdom that Jesus says we're all part of. And so just because you can quote something doesn't mean you get the juice out of it, doesn't mean you get the impact out of it, but when you begin to see what you're saying and what its implications are, it, it, it's like a promise that melts and floods your being. Everybody with me there? Yeah, I've said this before. The word is like congealed spirit. A friend of mine told me this. It's a great picture. Congealed spirit. The word's like jello. There's always room for jello. Come on. You're supposed to say jello. Oh, that's right. You're, you've always room for Apple or always, and so, always room for Facebook. No. J E L L O is a congealed substance that when you put it in your mouth, it melts and releases what's in it. Well, that's what the word's like. The word in a believer's devotional, Believing mouth releases what is in the promise. Somebody shout, oh my. No, don't shout. Don't want that going on up in here. Now, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The word want means lack. Paul, or, or I've got Psalm 23 in the Lord's Prayer, and I've got a David's Paul. So just, I haven't preached in five weeks, so I'm a little rusty. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The word want means lack. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not lack anything. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Well, why don't you say that to your lack instead of agreeing with it? One, one of the commentators says, He who has the possessor of all things himself has all things. The Lord has all things. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. If you have him, you have access to all things. You may need to know how that works. And one of the ways it works is you agree. But the Lord's your provider, preserver, your director. We're going to learn more and more over the years that he really is everything, that we really don't need anything else but him, because everything we need is in him. Now, David knew sheep. David was a shepherd. Here's what he knew about sheep. And sheep, here's a picture of you and I. Sheep are weak, defenseless, and foolish. So if you're weak, defenseless, and foolish, if you've got nothing going on good, if you're a low-level sheep, I mean, maybe some of those high-level sheep weren't defenseless. Good teeth, strong jaw, who knows? But what this means is the Lord will provide for everyone. If you're weak, if you're defenseless, if you're foolish, you still have access to a God who can make a difference in your life. You don't have to be somebody to be somebody. Now, David knew how much sheep needed shepherds to survive. He himself, as a picture of this shepherd, said... I slew the lion and I slew the bear. There are times where we can't defend ourselves, but God will simply come to our defense. I think we don't trust him enough. I think too many times we try to do things for ours. You know, the American way is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So what if you don't have any boots? nobody succeeds without somebody else's help. Have you figured that out? Nobody. Nobody succeeds without somebody else's help. How do you get that help? Sometimes the Lord has to provide his help through other people, through relationships, through divine connections. But here's something worth thinking about. David smelled like the sheep, and the sheep smelled like David. Did you ever think about that? What did David smell like? 
Why did they not invite him to the ordaining service when it's his time to be king? He probably smelled bad. No, I don't know. No, that's not it. I know why, but that's another story. But David smelled like the sheep, and the sheep smelled like David. Well, what am I talking about? He identified fully with who they were. The Lord is my shepherd. The shepherd smells like the sheep. The sheep smell like the shepherd. I'm getting at something. What I'm saying is that our father, our shepherd, became a sheep to be able to fully identify with us and understand us experientially. You can say you understand somebody else's predicament. What you're really saying is you're faking compassion or you think you understand how they feel, but if you haven't been through what they've been through, you honestly really just don't know. One of the best things you can tell people who are in a mess, who are brokenhearted, who are struggling, is not, I know how you feel. You know what you need to do? You need to say, I am sorry you're going through this. What can I do to help? But David smelled like the sheep. The sheep smelled like David. What am I saying? Jesus so identified with us. I remember the Lord talked to me one time about shame. I was telling the Lord, no, Lord, I felt shamed about this. And uh, Then I said, but you never felt ashamed. Because shame comes out of misbehavior, right? Shame comes out of uh, doing something you shouldn't have done. And you're not really ashamed until somebody else usually knows about it. It's funny how that works. But I told the Lord, you don't, you, you've never been ashamed. He said, well, that's not true. And I said, well, when were you ashamed? He said, I, I was ashamed on the cross. I felt shame. I felt your shame. And the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, doing what? Despising the shame. And so there was something so significant in God's heart for us that he didn't simply want to theologically or intellectually or philosophically know what we are going through. He wanted to experience us. And what he did, and it's the wonder of the gospel, he experienced us at our sinful worst on the cross. So this idea that God doesn't understand how we feel is crazy. He understands way more than we, he understands us better than we understand ourselves. First of all, because he's God. And second of all, because he went through this amazing cosmic un who understands the actual implications of the gospel in its depth. But he did that. He did that. Now, so it's like he smells like us, but we, we are supposed to smell like him. What do I mean? Second Peter 1 says, I'm not going to read all of it, but verse 4, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. How valuable is a promise? It's invaluable. Why? Because a promise believed has the capacity to impart to you the divine nature of God. What does that mean? It means God has the ability to put his nature in you. According to First Peter or Second Peter one, two, and four, whereby through these promises you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So that's another way the Lord's our shepherd. It, it's mystical. The, the I've been saved close to fifty years. I don't understand half of what I thought I used to understand. The more you know the Lord, the more faith you're going to need, not less. Because we don't understand how he does this stuff. I'm just glad he does. Verse 2. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Did you notice that word makes me? He leads me beside the still waters. Now, David is singing about an oasis. He's singing about 
a God who can make him. We think God just makes us do things we don't want to do, don't we? That's our viewpoint of God or our parents or somebody. We don't want to be made. I want to know the Lord who makes me enter into awesome things. How about you? I can't, Listen, I've tried to get into good stuff all my life spiritually. I've been half successful, but I want the Lord just to make me better than I am. I want him to make me experience what he's talking about here, what it is to lie down in green pastures, not get knocked down. People say, well, God's a gentleman, the Holy Spirit, he'll never make you do anything you don't want to do. That's about 90% true. I want him to do some things in me that beyond my capacity to simply enter in by agreement and faith and yielding. Sometimes he just needs to come do stuff, right? Lots of times we need to be obedient. Matter of fact, all the time. But other times God needs to do something for us that we just simply could not possibly ever get done. And I know that's part of what he wants to do. Makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside the still water. So it's a picture there of an oasis. And there's some Old Testament evidence that God will do things in us sometimes in opposition maybe to our own will. Getting a little scary, huh? Psalm 36, but they're all good things. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures, for with you is the fountain of life. Now, abundantly satisfied in one translation goes this way. They shall be made drunk with the fullness of your house. The word give them drink is translated, actually, you know, people say King James is the uh, translation the Apostle Paul read. Of course, that's not true. Let me tell you what translation he did read. He read the Septuagint translation. That's the Old Testament translation he read. Here's how the Old Testament translation on Psalm 36 would read. And they shall be made drunk with the fullness of your house, you shall make them drink from the river of your pleasures. And so there is a point in God where if we get close enough to him, there's some stuff going to happen to us, like it or not. But it's all good stuff. It's all impartation of divine life. It's an impartation of divine joy that can absolutely catch us off guard. That is an essential ingredient to living a successful Christian life. There needs to be a level of hope and joy that is not at all connected to our current experience or how well things are going. That, for the most part, is people trying hard to be Christian. But what happens at the end of that kind of Christianity, you get mean and hostile and critical because it ain't working out for you and you want to let other people know it ain't working out for them either. There is a point where when you get close enough to the Lord, He will seep into your soul a high level of life that will utterly wreck you for anything else you've ever known. Let me tell you why people get drunk, take drugs. It's because there's something in most people that only getting drunk and taking drugs begins to speak to that is actually an imitation for God himself. A lot of Christian kids are on drugs because there's not enough of God around to touch that thing they need to be touched. Some, oh man, there are needs people have deep in their hearts and deep in their lives. That's why they get into that stuff. And they're enticed into it. And then it turns around and bites them. It destroys them. It controls them and it wrecks their lives. That is a substitute for something God wants to do where he releases the presence and power, the intoxicating presence of the Spirit of God that touches that part of you. It may even make you act foolish or look stupid, but at the end of it, it touches that very place. The apostles knew it in Pentecost. 
The ancient Scottish divines used to say, when you find yourself in the cellar, look for the cask of wine. And they weren't talking about drinking alcohol. They were talking about a God that they knew that could refresh them, that could restore them, that could impart a joy to them that was unspeakable and full of something the Bible calls glory. A greater than encounter and experience than most people settle for in this life as believers. And I'm telling you this, if our nation's going to change, it's not going to change at the ballot box. It's going to change at the steeple house, so to speak. It's going to change at a place where people get hungry enough for God, that God acts the way He wants to act in their midst. And He can release to Him Himself in ways that we have not yet really fully experienced. It's called a great awakening. And one of the great awakenings, 6,000 people lived in the largest city of Kentucky. I think it was Lexington or Louisville. We've got some Kentucky. Which one was it? Lexington, Louisville. One of those two. And when the power of God moved with no Facebook, with no telephones, with no television, with nothing but weekly newspapers, 18,000 people came to a riverbank in, in uh, uh, Red River, Kentucky. How did they get there? But a weekend gathering of spontaneous outpouring of God was triple the size of the largest city in the state. What's the largest city in our state? I think it's Charlotte. How many people? million. That would mean something happened spontaneous in Charlotte and 18 million people came. That would be an accurate comparison as to what happened during the Great Awakening. Shocking. I believe the Lord's going to do that, something like that. Maybe not exactly. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Verse 3. Restores my soul means He fetches back my vitality. Have you lost something in your soul? Have you lost a strength in your soul? Have you lost a joy in your spirit? Have you lost a, a, a patience or a peace? Have you lost something? Maybe you never had it. Do you know what our shepherd says he'll do? He'll go get it and bring it back. He restores our soul. I really like that. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I'm buzzing through some of these because I want to get to the end here. For his name's sake. That's a great comment, though. He leads us in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. What could that possibly mean? It means when God reveals his nature, it's an embarrassment for him for us to live at a level below what he can do for us because of who he is. For his name's sake, he wants to elevate you. For his name's sake, he wants to deliver you. Because of who he is, how great he is, he wants to lead you in the paths of righteousness. Verse 4, this is great. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear what? No evil. David was afraid of Absalom. What was his proclamation? I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Holy Spirit's called the Holy Comforter. And to comfort someone, you, you know the thing, I, one of the many, many things I love about my wife is she comforts me. All she has to do is put her hand on my back and I'm receiving. But God wants to do that for us. He wants, you know, we have such, some of us I think have such a severe view of God that He's really a taskmaster. He's just the guy that makes everything, everybody do the right thing. No, no, no. He is called the Holy Comforter. I really, I really like that. That means to preserve, 
the feeling of security and a cheerful spirit. One of the commentators wrote that. That's what it is to comfort. That's what he wants to do. Your rod and your staff, who you are, what you do. They provide me with a feeling of security and a cheerful spirit. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. One of the commentators wrote, Even when David passes through a valley dark and gloomy as a shadow of death, where surprises and calamities of every kind threatened him, he hears no misfortune. I like this idea of being in trouble, but trouble not being in me. Because if trouble's not in me, it doesn't matter where you are, right? But this idea of living your life through external means by, oh, you're happy if you're in happy surroundings and you're unhappy if you're in unhappy surroundings, that's low level. We have a God who wants to do something in us that our lives, we have an interior contemplative life in him that sustains us in our situations and circumstances to the degree that other people see us and want to know what that is that makes us that way. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. So I ask myself this question. How is it that God does everything he says he does in the first four verses of the psalm? Well, I believe the answer is found in part in verse 5. It's the oil and the wine. It's amazing to me you can be in a mess. What's the Lord do? He says, well, let's have a party. Let's set a table. Invite our enemies. They can watch if they like. God has so much confidence in himself, he will set a table before us, and he doesn't mind if our enemies show up. And if we receive his anointing, the anointing with oil and the cup that runs over, we won't care if they're there either. Let me say that again. How is it that God accomplishes everything he does through those first four verses? It's through this table that he prepares for us where our heads are anointed with oil and our cup runs over. The idea there is our enemies have to look on quietly without being able to do anything to see how greatly we're blessed by God. Anoints my head with oil. Hebrews 1.9 said of Jesus, You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of what? Gladness. What is it for God to anoint our heads with oil? is to impart to us such a sense of gladness that that impartation is sufficient and more so for whatever situation or circumstance we're in. Who likes that? I like that. My cup runs over. One translation is he fills his cup to excess. In other words, there's more, he, he has more for your cup than your cup holds. My cup does what? Runs over. Now, um, you know there are um, five translations of the Old Testament. There's an Ethiopic text, there's a Latin Vulgate, there's the Septuagint. And there's um, the Chaldaic. I don't know if that's five, but all of those are different translations of the Old Testament, different languages. And like I said earlier, the one Paul and the apostles read was the Septuagint. And so when they read Psalm 23.5, they didn't read, my cup runs over. Say that, though. Say that with me. My cup runs over. How many of you believe that's the word of God? I do. But it's, it's not fully 
It's the word of, did you agree it's the word of God? Yes. Yes. When, when Paul read Psalm 23, 5, he read this. Your cup is making me drunk like the finest wine. Is that shocking? It is shocking. It's shocking to Southern Baptists for sure. But it's not, although Jesus did not turn water into grape juice. Come on, you can't argue that. You know, me, be not drunk with grape juice, wherein is excess. Same word. You can't argue that. You can certainly, and I, I would agree with you, that drinking alcohol is not a good thing. But the wine, and, and when people drink wine, the reason they drink it is the way it makes them feel. But here again, it's a substitute for what... The psalmist was talking about. See, there is this intoxicating presence of God that is so wonderful. But the problem is it embarrasses people when it happens. Have you ever been in meetings where people were, uh, church meetings where people were rolling around on the floor and laughing and howling and weeping and their, their churches, that's just not going to go on. But I really like that because I know, I don't like it when people fake it. I've seen that too. But I know this. The promise of the Father, let me go back. If you were a good father and you had unlimited resources and you wanted to give your kids whatever it took to cause them to excel and... and um, be successful and wholesome and whole, would you give that to them? And the answer is a resounding yes. Well, when the Father did that, He did that for us through what's called the promise of the Father, which was the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we see what that looked like when He came. And it was embarrassing and it was out of control. And it didn't make sense to people to a certain degree in their minds. And people complained about it. But nevertheless, until that happened to the 120, they had lived, particularly the 12, had lived and walked and talked. And they knew what Jesus' ears looked like and what his toes looked like. And they knew every word he spoke out of his mouth. And they saw him do signs and they saw him do wonders. And they slept in the same place with him. And they walked through the same problems with him, but until Acts chapter 2, even after having three years of personal experience with the literal bodily fleshly Jesus, they were still afraid of their enemies until the promise of the Father touched them in such a profound way that they would instantly walk out in the streets of Jerusalem and tell people a message that would have killed them days earlier. And see 3,000 of them give their lives to this Jesus they had just seen crucified 40, 50 days earlier. Ladies and gentlemen, there is more. There is more in God. And I'm not happy with what I got, and I have all. I mean, you know, I could give you the theology. Theologically, I've got all there is of Him. But practically and experientially, I'm ready for more. I'm ready for something so profound, lives are changed. Your cup is making me drunk like the finest wine. Septuagint translation of Psalm 23.5. Psalm 16.5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. Repeat that after me. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my so what's in your cup? God. But this is what he's doing. It goes on to say, you are he that restores my inheritance to me. Our inheritance as believers is the word of God and the spirit of God. And the day is upon us where if we do not give diligent Hunger and pursuit to both of those things, we're going to suffer loss. Our, 
Our inheritance as believers is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God, as we see demonstrated in the New Testament, and if we do not develop a hunger and a thirst for God that way, we're all going to suffer loss. I had a, I had a brilliant man. This, this guy called me. I met him a few years ago. Somehow we got connected again. He, he does advertising for Mercedes and Coca-Cola and IBM and he's, he's amazing. And he said to me, Robin, why with all these leadership, Christian leadership gurus out there, do we have such low level leadership in our country? And I said, that's too big a question for me. I can't answer it. But here's the only thought I have. They're a product of intellectual Christianity, which basically at a given point provides you with arguments, not power. And when you are an argument-based Christian, you simply draw lines in the sand to try to figure out where people stand, and that is not what Jesus did. And so we have leadership gurus who are producing people who can produce people who produce people who produce people who can put out books and tapes and CDs and onlines and uplines and motivational sales things. But where are the leaders if that worked? Here's what's missing. God. Experiential God. See, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. You are he that restores my inheritance to me. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Did you know you're being pursued? By goodness and mercy. And I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I buzzed right through there, and I'm going to talk about this some more in the coming weeks. But I want us to do this. I've got another slide. I've got some proclamations But when we make these proclamations, let's make them in context of what we heard. You ready for that? And we'll 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 end here. Number one, the Lord is my shepherd. Now you're making a proclamation here. This is your declaration. He leads me. He restores me completely. I will fear no evil. You are with me. You comfort me. You prepare a table for me. You anoint my head with oil. You fill my cup. Goodness and mercy overtake me. He cares for me, watches over me, preserves me. His heart is full of love for me. Amen. Everybody good? Take a deep breath. Breathe, let's breathe in promise this morning. Let's just take a deep breath and breathe in, in with promise, out with despair or fear. Okay? Take a deep breath by faith. Just, just breathe in faith and hope in the presence of God. Lord, this morning I renounce all fear, all frustration, all evil. And we embrace you, Lord. We embrace you, the God that lives in us. We embrace you and thank you in in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to say something really quick, something I've been thinking about for a while. I think because it's Mother's Day, this is appropriate, but you can sit down. Um, I'll be real quick because I know it's already after afternoon, and I'm, I'm hungry too. So, But I, um, I was uh, around Christmas time, I was in Paris for the, um, the UN Climate Change Conference, and that's a long story. I won't get into it. I told my dad, if he doesn't talk about Donald Trump, I won't talk about climate change. So, deal. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Um, but I, I was in situations I really never expected to be in. Um, 
And we went around and I met some people who were influential. And one of the people that I met was a lady named Mary Robinson. She's the first female president of Ireland. And um, I got to sit down and talk with her for a minute. And I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, I was with some friends and we were there as artists. And uh, we asked, we, one, of, one of my buddies asked her, why would you want to talk to us? Why would you take your time and sit down and want to talk to us? We're artists. We're musicians, you know, we're not important people. And she said this, and she said, well, artists are some of the architects of society. Artists are the people who teach people how to think. They don't tell people what to think. And she went on to talk about other architects of society, and she said this. And this is coming from the first female president of a very important country. Um, and she said that mothers are the greatest architect of society. She said that mothers, because mothers instill the values and they have the ability to speak into the future of entire nations just by the way they raise their kids because your first influence and some probably your, one of your most important influences as a person is your mother. And you know, women have been treated poorly throughout history. I mean, I think we know that, right? And there's been a lot of fighting. Women have had to fight for equality over the years. But I think sometimes we look at things that look... Um, because men have been the people in power and we look at the way men do things and the values of men and a lot of times women try and take on the values of men at the expense of things that are actually more important. A woman can do anything a man can do but sometimes in society we've looked and almost an immature feminism has devalued um, an immature feminism can sometimes devalue things that are actually more important and of greater value. So sure, a woman can do everything a man can do, but sometimes being a mother is actually more important than any of those things. And to a president of a major country, that seemed to be more important. So I don't think we always say that. you know. And I think it can be easy to want to be progressive and miss something that's actually very, very, very important. We can come up here and we can speak, we can be the leaders of countries, but the real people who are determining the future of our country are not people with microphones, not people at podiums, not people with power, but the real people with power are the people who are molding and speaking into and, and are cultivating and curating the values of our future. And no one does that more than mothers do. So I've been thinking this for a long time, and I've wanted to say this for a long time, and I've been saving this for Mother's Day. <laughs> so I want to say that. I want to say, who's a mom? Raise your hand if you're a mom. We love you. And I stand up. We want to pray for the moms. Can we pray for the moms? So we talk about a move of the Spirit, and we talk about those kind of values and stuff. And Lord Jesus, we just bless mothers. We just bless, mothers. We want to say you are important and you are valued and we love you. And anything that would come against that mindset to want to devalue what, who you are and what you do, we just want to break that off in the name of Jesus. And we just want to speak goodness. And we want to speak anointing to you. We want to speak wisdom to you. In Jesus' name. And rest. We want to speak rest and peace to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.